Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, where we want to read the first four verses together. If you're using our Adoration Bibles, Colossians 3 can be found on page 1253. 1253 in the Adoration Bibles. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, The Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen once asked his readers in his volume on spiritual mindedness, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? Or to state the question another way, what is the default setting of your mind? When, when you're driving home from work and the traffic is light and you're just, you know, cruising along, what are you thinking about? Where does your mind immediately begin to go? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? It's a sort of haunting question, isn't it? Because how we answer that question likely says a great deal about us, because What the answer to that question probably says for many of us is that our hearts and our minds are fixed on earthly things when they should be fixed on heavenly things. Now there are some who might raise the argument or the point of caution at this point and say, well, those who are so heavenly minded, well, they are of no earthly good. That objection has been raised by some. And yet if you read on into the rest of the chapter, what you'll soon discover is that those who are heavenly minded do the most earthly good. For if your your head is in heaven, as it were, that's going to have an extraordinary impact on the use of your hands and your feet here on the earth. If if your head is in heaven, if if the affections of your heart and and the thoughts of your mind are governed by Christ and directed to Christ, the blessedness of that will will necessarily bleed and pour out into every aspect of your life. And so Paul begins this next section of his letter with with a summons to this very thing. If then you have been raised with Christ, he says, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and and not on the things that are on earth for you have died he says 
and the entirety of your life, who you are, is now hidden with Christ in God. And so much so that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. In these four verses, Paul is is setting before us the gospel pathway to spiritual security and maturity. Having just addressed the paths that only lead to ruin, the paths of, of empty philosophy and legalistic piety, Paul now sets before us the path that leads to glory. And yet in so doing, Paul is not only seeking to remind his readers of of where they're going, but he's also seeking to remind them of of who they are. See, whoever these false teachers were, they were not only seeking to to rob the Colossians of their security, but they were also seeking to to rob them of their identity. You recall from, from last time how their insistence on various rites and rituals and religious experiences was causing some in the church to feel as though they were lesser. Certain false teachers were asserting that if you really wanted to attain spiritual fullness, if you really wanted to to know God's favor, then you had to abstain from certain, certain foods and certain drinks, and you had to participate in certain feasts and certain festivals. And if you didn't do these things, then you were judged to be something lesser. But then what did Paul say in chapter 2, verse 20? He said, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you are still alive to the world, do you still submit to regulations? And by asking that question, what Paul was essentially saying is, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you have died with Christ, and since you have died with Christ, you are now set free in Christ? Don't you recognize that that because you have been judged righteous in the sight of God, you no longer need to worry about the earthly judgments made by the world? Paul was reminding them of who they were in the Lord Jesus. And that's the thread that the apostle picks up on again here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, where he reminds them and where he reminds us that we have not only died with Christ, we have also been raised with Christ. As Paul says elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and, and the new has come. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this truth, this reality is what Paul is going to press upon us here in this chapter, because I am in Christ, I am no longer who I used to be. For in Christ, I've been made into something new. Because my life is hidden with Christ and God, I have a a new identity and a new mentality and a new destiny. These are the three things I'd like for us to consider together this morning. A new identity, a new mentality, in a new destiny. In the coming weeks, we're going to work through some of the implications of these things, which Paul sets forth in verses 5 and following. For Paul is not only careful to defend against legalism, but he's also careful to defend against antinomianism as well. If you really are a new creation, if you really are in Christ, then, 
you're necessarily going to live in a whole new way, as, as we'll see in verses 5 to 11. If you're really in Christ, you're going to mortify your sin. And if you're in Christ, then you're going to mirror your Savior, as we'll see in verses 12 to 17. As we'll see in verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. If you're in Christ, then, you're going to, then wives are going to submit to their husbands, and husbands are going to love their wives, and children are going to honor their parents, and you're going to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. As we'll see in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4, if you're in Christ Jesus, then you will continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and you will walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making best use of the time that the practical implications of our being united to Christ will discover are, are many. They are numerous. But before we can come to those practical implications, we must first understand that there is a, a gospel grammar to the Christian life. We must always remember and never forget that the imperatives of the Christian life of gratitude always proceed from the indicative promises, the indicative realities of God's grace. Our status is, is the basis and the grounds of our service and not the other way around. We so easily forget that we can often get things all turned around in our minds so that we think, no, God determines my status on the basis of my service. God loves me more when I'm doing really well in the Christian life, and he, and he loves me less when I'm doing poorly in the Christian life. But the gospel grammar of this chapter is that which sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion known to man. Our status is the base of our service and not the other way around. And so before Paul sets before us that which we must do, he first reminds us of who we are. He tells us of our new position. He tells us of the new power that we have access to in the Lord Jesus. He tells us of, of our identity. And what Paul is really doing here is simply echoing the very same truth that that he set before us all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2. Because how again did the apostle address these readers from the very outset of his letter? He said to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. You see, for the apostle Paul, this is what lies at the very heart of the Christian faith in life. Although we we live in Canada, although we live here in, in Ontario, the true realm of our existence is in the Lord Jesus. Not only have we died with him, we've also been raised with him so that our lives are now hidden with him and so that he himself is our life, as Paul says. And what this means, people of God, is that when God sees you, he no longer sees you for who you used to be. He no longer sees you in light of all your sins and failures. But when God sees you, he sees his only begotten son in whom your lives are now hidden. What a great source of encouragement this should be for us here and now. To be sure that 
the ramifications of this reality have a magnificent bearing on our future. Our new identity means that we have a, a new destiny. But the ramifications of this reality touch down on our lives already now. Because we live in a world and a culture where this whole question of, of identity is one of the biggest questions that a person faces. People look into the mirror and they ask themselves the question, who am I? Who am I? And the answers, of course, vary, for there are some in the world who are, who are very sure of themselves. There are some in this world whose identity is, is entirely based upon their success. They have climbed their way to the top. Others envy them. Others want to be them. They know who they are. They're a success story. But then there are others who, who know nothing of that experience at all. There are some who have tried to do their best, but have failed at every turn. They've gotten poor grades all their lives. Every business they've ever tried has, has been a failure, and this is what they're known for, for being a failure. They look at those around them who have been more successful than they, and they say, wow, that, that guy's a real somebody, and I, I'm just a nobody. This is their identity. Then there's a third category, a rapidly growing category, it would seem, consisting of those who look in the mirror and say, who am I? But they don't really know the answer. There are some who don't really know who they are, but, but the world around them tells them who they perhaps might be. Perhaps you're a person who's trapped in the wrong body. Perhaps you're a person who's trapped in the wrong species. Perhaps if you just make this change or make that change, perhaps if you, if you change your looks, if you change your attitudes, then maybe you can go from being a nobody to a real somebody. And as ridiculous as such notions may be, we should have nothing but compassion for such people. Because we as Christians know who we are. We know that, that we're children of God, loved by the Father from before the foundation of the world. We take heart in the knowledge that God made us to be exactly who we are. That God made us and we are his. We know who we are. But many people in the world don't. They are like the blind following the blind. They are like sheep without a shepherd moving towards the edge of a cliff. And we of all people should have nothing but sympathy for such people. Because as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you. Such were some of you by nature. All of us were enslaved to sin and didn't, and didn't have a clue. We were, but we were bought with a price and we were brought into the Lord Jesus. Who said to us, I'll tell you who you are. You're mine. For you have died in your life is hidden with Christ and God. The apostle is, is drawing out the further implications of what he has already said in the previous chapter. In verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul said that you have been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul has, has reminded his, his readers of that which was 
emblematic of their baptism, that when they, that when they came as, as families and individuals to be baptized, what they were professing to the world was that which God was, was saying to them in their baptism, namely, that their old lives were being left behind. And that who they were going to be from that point forward would be determined by the Lord Jesus. You see, boys and girls, at every baptism, something is is left behind. As those waters are are poured on the head, that the dirt on our skin is, is washed away and it's left behind and we're made clean. It's a picture of what happens when God rescues the sinner from the filth of his or her sin. And through the gracious work of the Spirit, God so unites the sinner to the Lord Jesus that that sinner is adopted into a new family and that sinner receives a new identity. In fact, it's not uncommon in some places in the world that when a convert comes to faith in Christ to be baptized, he takes upon himself a a whole new name to make this sharp line of distinction. I am no longer the person I used to be. I am, a, I am a new person. Especially those who are converted in those pagan contexts where those names carry the significance of, of pagan realities. They say, yeah, that's not me anymore. I'm a, I'm a new person. I, I now know for sure who I am. I am in Christ Jesus. And although the world may not see it, although this new identity is is hidden with Christ, just as the the mystery of the cross is is hidden from those who are perishing, this is who we now are. Whatever sins may have marred your identity in the past are now covered by the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. In the words of one pastor, your spiritual bank account is filled with his goodness And you are so secure in God's heart that he has already granted you Christ's heavenly status. You have a new status, a new position, new power at your disposal. You have been raised with Christ. You have resurrection power. And you are already now seated with him in heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice in the second place that this new identity necessarily leads, it produces, it works within us a new mentality. Those who have been raised with Christ, says Paul in the middle of verse 1, are to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. What Paul is essentially getting at here is that those who are in Christ begin to see the world and they see their place in the world in a whole new light. They look through everything through an entirely different lens. Our new identity shapes our mentality in such a way that the affections of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds are more and more conformed to this Jesus who is seated in glory at the right hand of God. These are the two ideas that the words seek and set are getting at. When Paul summons us to to seek the things that are above, the word translated there as as seek is a word that has to do with with desire. It has to do with, with the affections and the desires of your heart. 
Because Paul recognized, he knows from his, from his former life, he knows the, the spiritual void that, that exists in the heart of man. He understands that in his sin and misery, man tries to, to fill that void with all sorts of, of earthly and worldly things. He seeks to, to fill that void with sex and money, with power and popularity. He sets his heart on these things. But he is never satisfied. He remains empty. But those who are in Christ, says Paul, must learn not only to find their identity in Christ, but also their fullness, their whole mentality and and outlook on life in Christ. They must yearn more and more for him, recognizing that as the psalmist says in Psalm 16, he makes known to us the the path of life, and and in his presence there is fullness of joy, and, and that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And it is this deep desire for him that must control the orientation and and direction of your lives. The verbal tense that Paul uses here when he says, seek the things that are above, is is a tense that points points them that is deliberate and, and ongoing. There is a need, says Paul, to continually and conscientiously Nurture these longings of the heart by seeking after Christ and all his grace and glory. Because he alone can can fill the void. God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. It's something that we see illustrated throughout the Psalter, isn't it? David said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In Psalm 63, he said that God's steadfast love is better than life itself. What did Asaph cry out in Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he himself is my portion forever. For we can never rest content, says one pastor, until we are fully and finally with him. And so in verse 2, Paul moves on from the disposition of the heart to to the focus of the mind. When he says, "Set, set your minds, set your minds on the things that are above. And here too, the verbal tense conveys this idea of a deliberate and an ongoing activity. To quote one pastor, there is nothing casual or careless about what Paul has in view here, but rather the need to reorder the whole way we think. Paul expresses the the sentiment similarly in Romans chapter 12 when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's how Paul begins that section of gratitude in Romans. Having spoken about justification from Chapters 3 through 11, and God's saving grace, how God loves the unloving, the unlovable, as we heard in our call to worship. He now says, let your minds be transformed by these things. No longer conformed to the old patterns and mindset of the world, but transformed by the the renewing of your mind. 
For it's only as your thought patterns are transformed and, and tuned to Christ that our lives can be more and more conformed to Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. Is this your mentality this morning? There are so many people in the world, we're surrounded by those whose minds are fixed. They are set on earthly things. Paul lamented this very thing in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears in my eyes, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. There are so many in this world who consider their lives and the value of their lives to be determined by what they've accomplished and the things they've acquired. And God says their end is destruction. Where have you set your minds? What, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What is the default setting of your mind? Where is your heart this morning? What are you thinking about right now? Where have you set your mind? What are you seeking? Paul urges us here to seek with our hearts, to focus with our minds on the things that are above where our Savior is seated at God's right hand. Christ, we know, is, is seated in heaven because there is nothing left for him to do, because he has fully accomplished all the work of redemption. And so in contrast to all those priests of the Old Testament, Hebrews 10, who, who stood daily at their post, their work was never done. Christ sat down. He's seated there the right hand of the Father, his work is finished. Where have we set our minds? Christ has gained eternity for you. That's why he's seated at the right hand of God. He's gained eternity for you. He's already done it. He's gained eternity for you. And so Paul is calling us to, to live with, with eternity in view live with eternity in view, to, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot come in and, and break in and steal. He's summoning us to recognize that whose we are is what defines who we are, and who we are must have a profound impact on the way we are, what we love, and how we think what we strive for, what we long for. Our new mentality must be shaped by our new identity. And this Paul presses home further still in verse 4, because as if a new identity were not reason enough, what does he set before us in verse 4? Paul sets before us a, a new destiny. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. By nature, we were destined for death and destruction. But in Christ, says Paul, you and I are destined for glory. In contrast to those who who set their minds on earthly things, in contrast to those whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, whose end is destruction. What does Paul say in Philippians 2, verse 20, 3, verse 20? Our citizenship is already now in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables him now to subject all things under his feet. Because we share in Christ's identity, we can be sure that we will share also in his destiny. That's how united to Christ you are. That's how in Christ you are. Yes, as I said earlier on, your true identity, your eternal destiny may be, may be hidden by the world. To the outside world, we as Christians are, are little and insignificant. But what does John say in 1 John chapter 3? Beloved, beloved, we are God's children already now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As C.S. Lewis once said in his address, The Weight of Glory, it is a serious thing to keep in mind that, that the dullest and most uninteresting person you have ever talked to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How amazing it is for us to recognize that in this world of of death and decay, where everyone dies and where our culture seems to be rotting from the inside out, We have a living Savior and a lasting promise. In Christ, we have a glorious guarantee that even as he was always destined for glory, just as Christ was was destined for glory on the day he was born, just as he was destined for glory even on the day that he died, so too you and I are destined for glory. There are more promises in the Bible than we can number, but all those promises find their culmination. They all find their fulfillment in what Paul is saying to us here in Colossians 3 verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This is why we sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found, he is my light, my strength, my song, no guilt in life, no fear and death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. You're no longer the author of your destiny. Jesus controls your destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand. 
Until he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. That's how united to Christ you are. This is the message that the gospel claims to us. No longer are you destined for death. No longer are you destined for hell and damnation. But in Christ, you and I are destined for glory. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are of this world. For you have died. The old you has died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. It struck me as I was preparing this sermon that Paul is really calling us to to long for the very same thing that Christ longs for. As much as you and I ought to long for Christ, such longing is only possible because Christ himself longs for us. This you may know is what our Lord himself prayed for. With with Gethsemane and, and Golgotha before him, what did Jesus pray in John 17, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to go back to his Father. Heaven was going to receive him as the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. But Jesus prayed to his Father, I want my people to be with me. I love them and I want them to be with me. I want to be with them and I want them to see my glory. If that's what Christ wants us to see in the future, shouldn't we seek to see it in the present in his word? To seek his glory. And so as we do what Paul is summoning us to do, as we set our, mind, our hearts and our minds On Christ, you can be sure that Christ has his heart. He has his mind set on us. And he himself longs for the day when you and I will see him as he is. And we will see him in all his glory and grace. Indeed, as John says in Revelation 22, a day is coming when we shall see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. Night will be no more. And we will not need a lamp or sun. For the Lord our God will be our light. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a magnificent reality it is for us to know that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we rose with him. And that in virtue of his death and resurrection, we have a new identity. We have a new status, a new position, and new power at our disposal. Father, we thank you for the logic, for the grammar of the gospel that our status is the basis of our service and not the other way around. Help us, Lord, to live in light of our status, to live 
as those who know who we are, as those who are sons and daughters of God. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who who feel as though they don't know who they are, Lord, we pray that they would find their identity, their all and everything in the Lord Jesus. As we live in a world that would tempt us to define ourselves, to make ourselves to be the authors of our own destiny. But to do so, Lord, is death and destruction. And so may all of us here, Lord, find our identity not in the things we have done, not in the things we have acquired, nor in our failures or our our shortcomings, but to find our identity in him who is seated at the right hand of God. Help us, Lord, to set our minds upon these things, to seek the things that are above and to set our minds on him. May our desire for him govern everything we do and say here on earth. Lord, may our heads be in heaven so that our hands and feet may serve you faithfully here on the earth. And Lord, help us to keep our destiny in view. In the midst of all our trials, in the midst of all our sorrows, in the midst of all our tribulations, our sadness and our tears, as we grieve what sin has done in our lives, plaguing our conscience as we grieve the effects of sin, death, and disease. Lord, help us to keep our destiny in view, to remind ourselves every day that we are destined for glory and that a day is coming when we shall be made like our glorious Savior because we shall see him as he is. And so, Father, we pray that he would come that he would come quickly to take us to be where he is. For we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.